0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In August 2021, the world looked on in disbelief at the rapid collapse of the Western-backed government of Afghanistan, the retreat of foreign forces, and the takeover of the Taliban all in a matter of days. In trying to understand what led to these extraordinary events and to understand the nature of Afghanistan under the new Taliban, we're helped enormously by a book that's just out called The Return of the Taliban... By Professor Hassan Abbas, and he's a distinguished professor of international relations at the Near East South Asia Centre for Strategic Studies in the National Defence University in Washington, D.C. He also may be familiar to some listeners of the Doomsday Watch podcast for his fascinating interview on the background and life story of A.Q. Khan. And I'm delighted that Hassan's able to join me today in the bunker to talk about his book and about Afghanistan in the modern age. Hassan, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be with you again.
0: Hassan, just to start off, could we very quickly identify the key players at that moment of the downfall of Kabul? You've got the president of Afghanistan, you've got the Taliban coming in, and you've, you've got the Americans. Who, who are the key individuals in that space?
1: I think at that time um, it was President Ashraf Ghani surrounded, but some by some of his very close associates, his Vice President Amrullah Saleh, uh, who, who's one of the um, now uh, leaders of the resistance movement. If we make all that, um, Mohib, uh, who was his National Security Advisor, a very important player, and then his cabinet. But during the last days, none of his cabinet members were visible. Uh, we don't know where they went. And then there were these old warlords, Ismail Khan, um, Atta Muhammad Noor, uh, and uh, uh, Dostam. They were also missing in action. I think they, some of them left early on. But his close associates were with him and his uh, military general and defense minister, Bismillah Khan. That was the Afghan government uh, on August 14, 2021. And on the other side were Taliban quite uh, uh, disjointed at that time in a sense. The Doha group, which was relatively moderate, who were negotiating with the US. Um, then there was this Haqqani group in the mountains somewhere in the eastern world. Uh, there was the leader of the military, Mullah Yaqub, the son of the founder of um, Taliban. And then there were these ordinary soldiers and military commanders. Um, and last but not the least, Mullah Hebatullah, the head of Taliban, who was probably either in the border areas or uh, running his school in Pakistan's Quetta. So Taliban leadership was also all in different places from Karachi in Quetta to Kandahar. And uh, Afghan government, the former President Ashraf Ghani's government, they were mostly isolated in Kabul. That that was the lay of the land, perhaps on August uh, 2021. But just one more thing I would add, some of the Taliban negotiators in this time were negotiating and cutting deals with so many tribes around Kabul and were moving in unknown to almost everyone. Major intelligence agencies also missed out. They were all thinking, this is Doha, this is uh, Quetta, this is Peshawar. And no one realizes that under Khalil Haqqani, an uncle of Siraj Haqqani, he was a master negotiator who was uh, moving towards Kabul in a very refined, sophisticated way, convincing tribes, telling them, look, Ashraf Ghani is on his way out. We will be in Kabul soon. You better talk to us now and cut a peace deal. Otherwise, we will come after you afterwards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, people will all remember what seemed a pretty humiliating exit. He basically ran from the country, abandoning his seat as president. And as, you, as you've as you explained there, you know, there were all kinds of Interplays and so on. Um, interestingly, you, you write about Ashraf Ghani, and of course, he's somebody who, for many years of his life, was was outside Afghanistan, as, as many of the sort of intelligentsia were. And of course, Zalmay Khalilzad, this other American diplomat, himself Afghan-born, and there's almost a kind of parallel lives element to these two key figures. So, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, these famous negotiations that the the Trump administration initiated, which then led to uh, the the Taliban arrival uh, at the at the gates of Kabul, as you've mentioned there, Zalmay Khalilzad, uh, uh, the, the the chief negotiator himself of Afghan heritage, uh, he and Ghani had a prickly relationship. But is is one reading of what happened that basically? Uh, Trump decided he'd lost interest in Afghanistan. He couldn't persuade his generals to pull out in in, in a kind of uh, proactive way, which is perhaps his preference. So what he did was he he ensured that a negotiation took place which would inevitably lead to that happening anyway. Is, is, is that a possible interpretation? Uh,
1: that is absolutely true. To give credit where due... Um, um... Keeping aside one's political um, views, Trump was quite quick in uh, getting this clarity of mind that uh, we are investing billions and billions of dollars on a monthly basis in Afghanistan. And it is uh, not leading to anything um, in terms of the US interests. I mean, it, it was a long state building exercise which had run its course, which did some important things as well. There were new institutions that were built, there was the new rise of young uh, Afghans who are dedicated uh, to the future of Afghanistan in a a different sense. Um, All of that was a contribution by the Western Alliance. However, President Trump realized that it's not going to work because Taliban were constantly gaining more territory. And yes, uh, whenever he was talking to the military, he was told, one more month three more months. We can turn this around. And at one point, um, and I quote uh, another scholar who who had insight uh, information on that, President Trump was heard shouting in White House saying, um, whenever he would see his top officials in National Security Council, he would shout, where is my deal? Where is my deal? And uh, so there was pressure and he directly tasked Mr. Zalmi Khalilzad, the, uh, as you rightly mentioned, the American diplomat with a lot of experience, Zalmi Khalilzad had served uh, in Iraq also as a U.S. ambassador. He had served uh, uh, in UN as also, and um, he had various other tasks also within the State Department, which which really trained him well. And one thing I would just mention, when I was interviewing many people, um, those who were involved in the Doha negotiations, I heard from so many that um, that oh, Zalmay Khalilzad is the one to be blamed. Everyone kind of threw him under the carpet, and I was saying, well, that's unfair. It's not possible that it was a one-man show. Zalmay Khalilzad had complete support from the Secretary of State at that time from the U.S. president. And he was told what we cannot figure out on the battlefield uh, has to be negotiated through the Doha deal. And that's why uh, those negotiations were happening. Yes, there was a kind of a hurried end. Uh, and um, Zalme Khalilzad, was able to, um, you can say, uh, dismiss some of the genuine concerns of so many other parties. I mean, today we are hearing uh, about this dissent cable from the Secretary of State in the United States um, who had disagreed. So this this opens up that whole debate. Uh, Although this was a later uh, incident, um, this by then, uh, President Trump was out. uh, But you're right, this was a kind of a internal uh, political battlefield between Congress at one level between the president and the military and um, at the end of the day it it all was in the hands of the next president President Biden um, and the withdrawal was a mess. Um, so even I would try to argue, that the negotiated deal, despite its severe weaknesses and flaws, was able to get us to a point where everyone agreed that there will be a negotiated peace in which Taliban will not be the only victors. The political leadership of Afghanistan will also have a say. So I've just one new thing that I came to know about was that when Ashraf Ghani was about to leave and he has this plane ready, thanks to uh, his contacts in uae there was another plane available uh, at the tarmic in kabul airport also which was supposed to take him and abdullah abdullah to doha to qatar and the understanding was that taliban will have their representatives mullah habibullah who's now the top leader will lead the government but that interim cabinet will have some members of the ashraf ghani government also have some Taliban government, and they will then go further step by step in accepting 1964 Afghan constitution as the document. But that never happened because Ashraf Ghani ran away. So in some ways, whatever was the plan, which could have led to a better solution or better end result, uh, was jeopardized uh, by by Ashraf Ghani's
0: um, escape. And... It's very um, almost universal to, to look at that escape and, and accuse him of cowardice. But had he stayed, would, would he not have been executed or, you know, killed by an angry mob? I mean, what what, what was the risk that he was facing?
1: That is true. Also, to be fair to him, um, that he was told by many people and he remembered that the last time Taliban had such an opportunity, uh, they had hanged Najibullah, the former president of Afghanistan. However, um, Ashraf Ghani, on even the morning of his escape, was trying to give the impression that he's going to stay there. And you cannot perhaps totally discredit Ashraf Ghani just because of the escape. But what uh, he he was accused of, and I think rightly so, was that during the final days in Kabul, he failed to govern. He could have asked his military, he could have organized his security forces better to at least defend Kabul, because that would have given a stronger negotiating position to those forces who were politically uh, oriented, who were pro-democracy, to negotiate a deal with Taliban. And Taliban were told categorically by Zalman Khalilzad and others that you will not enter Kabul. That's why they were they were waiting on the gates of Kabul. They, none of them was able uh, to, to walk in because that was the understanding. Yeah. And because U.S. military had a direct understanding, in a sense, through Zalmay Khalilzad in Doha, that uh, no U.S. forces or Western alliance or U.K. forces, anyone from, from NATO will be directly attacked. So Taliban were listening. Taliban were working. Uh, and it was the... Total failure of uh, Ashraf Ghani to lead his forces to ensure uh, that there is some security. I mean, he left it everything to local commanders who, when they realized Ashraf Ghani can't do anything, they were all cutting deals with Taliban. Yeah, and and that's why Ashraf Ghani's failure uh, is more not only about as regards his escape, which which one can cannot justify, but understand his failure was more of leadership.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. Let's talk a bit about the Taliban itself, and particularly now that the, you know the focus of your book is, of course, at them as a movement and and how they now control Afghanistan. One thing that I I saw, I spent time in Afghanistan as a, a British public servant. Um, in, in Helmand is that, of course, the term Taliban is used very loosely. And, and ultimately, it sort of became a term that meant anyone pointing a gun at a NATO forces, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a very unsatisfactory term. But something that you explore in your book is the, the different uh, sort of uh, factions within the Taliban. Perhaps you could uh, explain those briefly for, for our listeners.
1: Thank you, and this reminds me also to thank you for your service, and, and that was all those who served in Afghanistan on behalf uh, of so many of of the Western allies of US and UK. I mean, that, that was um, a huge service. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, you're so right. Um, we generalize things, uh, and the tragedy is that we kept on generalizing even our 20 years engagement in Afghanistan. Taliban, if I have to even um, roughly... Uh, kind of divide into different groups. There are four or five groups. One, the old uh, classic Taliban, um, uh, Mullah Habibullah, the new supreme leader, is a representative of that group in Kandahar. This is the old guard, uh, religious, but very dogmatic, very conservative, yeah. uh, have good relations with Pakistan, like Mullah Habibullah, the supreme commander, was running a small madrasa, a seminary c- close to Kuwaita. Um So there's that group in Kandahar. Then, for the purpose of ease, the other group is, for instance, which is now, I would say, in Kabul, which includes Haqqanis. Haqqanis were kind of a separate group uh, almost always. And then, over a period of time, they merged into mainstream Taliban. They took their positions. They are thirty to 40,000 foot soldiers that uh, Siraj Haqqani has. Uh, so, which gives gives him in the eastern provinces of Afghanistan, which gives him a lot of support within the system. Then there is the newer generation, like Mullah Yaqub, son of uh, the... the the founder of Taliban, Mullah Umar. Um, he has its um, own own support base. And uh, there are other newcomers. For instance, in the cabinet, um, there are two PhDs. Uh, there are some who are graduates of the Islamic University in Islamabad, which is not an old traditional mother's it's a, it's a modern university. So there are some relatively younger educated people as well. This is the new generation of Taliban, if I may call them. And then there are the, this organized uh, criminal groups who are into drug dealing. i mean and look at the the first major deal that taliban were able to cut with um, uh Outsiders after coming into power was getting back a drug dealer from from U.S. because the Taliban were releasing somebody that U.S. wanted, and they named a person. I have a picture of him in the book as well. Why would they go for a drug dealer? Because that's how they were getting all the funds. So there are drug dealers who were into drug smuggling, who were who were financing Taliban. That that's a separate group. They are criminals. They they look like them, but they they have very different interests. Yeah. Then I would argue there is a which are non-Pashtun Taliban, and they are the ones um, who are relatively newcomers, but they are have more support base in non-Pashtun areas of Taliban. That's a new thing. In Mazar Sharif, there's some Tajiks and Uzbeks, they still are perhaps not more than 10%. They have a Hazara Shia who's also a member of the Taliban now. Yeah. So that, that's also, those are the groups which are minority groups. Probably their interest is just to um, this instinct of survival, but they are a separate group as well. And last but not the least, is this young generation of Taliban soldiers who knew nothing else I mean, we must remember Mullah Omar uh, was ousted from Afghanistan in 2001. Today, in 2023, uh, most of the Taliban are in around age 19, 20, 21. So they were all born after the fall of the, the first Taliban regime. Yeah. These newcomers are jobless, frustrated. Uh, they have no access to education. They are a group... In themselves, Currently, they are standing by with the Taliban leadership, but their interests and hopes and aspirations are very different. So I would say these are five, six different groups of Taliban. We see them together, but they all have different interests, and those interests are now clashing. <laughs>
0: something that did also happen more or less the day after the war was the the famed visit of the head of uh, Pakistan's ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is, of course, one of the things that is said about the Taliban and that's been said from the beginning is that the Taliban is, is, is almost a directable uh, entity of the ISI. Now, of course, that's a gross oversimplification, but it is clear from reading your book and, of course, from many other Uh, sources that elements within the Taliban are extremely closely aligned with the ISI. So to what extent was the Taliban takeover of Kabul a victory for Islamabad? A very important
1: question. I think um, many in Islamabad... um in August 2021 framed the issue as a victory. And then they were told within even the Prime Minister of Pakistan at that time, Mr. Imran Khan, said something to the extent that, OK, this is the victory of the freedom fighters. I, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, there were others also within the military and intelligence who uh, who knew or who believed it to be a victory. But very quickly, they realized that with the Taliban cannot function and survive without support from the West. So very quickly, Pakistan reframed the issue as that, OK, we are not going to call it a victory of uh, any sort. They knew um, that U- U.S. and other L- U.S. allies were paying the bills. Um, almost 70 percent of the Afghan budget was coming from U.S. And they realized we will need that money for the regional stability, for trade. Pakistan's interest in Taliban were always about trade as well as about uh, pushing back or competing with India. Uh, they-, they want a stable Afghanistan now, now that they're uh, friends and their allies. However, there's a more nuance to it. A bit now that we have seen, uh, for instance, uh, the Pakistani Taliban who had re- wreck havoc in Pakistan and now are uh, resurging. Um, they were, uh, they are still in Afghanistan, and despite Pakistan's best efforts, uh, Afghan Taliban. From Kabul and Kandahar are not helping Pakistan uh, getting rid of or arresting or eliminating these Pakistani Taliban who are a huge danger to Pakistan. Yeah. And the reason is that Taliban have their own allies. Taliban were greatly helped by the Pakistani Taliban um, as in terms of the sanctuary that Afghan Taliban had in the Pakistani Pakistan Afghanistan frontier. And Taliban in Kabul and Kandahar today realize that they may need that sanctuary again. So Pakistan continues to have influence in. Um, in some cases, uh, it's very close one. Uh, one of the stories from my book that got everyone interested was uh, this this anecdote that uh, Mullah Muttaki, who is the foreign minister of Afghanistan, actually he's a good reputation, um, and he was secretly meeting with the former army chief of Pakistan, uh, General Kamar Javed Bajwa. And in one case, when Afghan Taliban were thinking about allowing the Indian diplomats to come back to Kabul they reached out to army chief and saying, "Okay, we need the Indians back because that's uh, Indians had done a lot of work in Afghanistan. And Bajwa, for his own political reasons, because of his own strategy, despite the contrary suggestions from the intelligence and foreign office, he said, "Okay, please, uh, I I would say bring back the Indians in Kabul. So Taliban were always seeking uh, guidance inverted commas, from Pakistani intelligence and military on critical decisions. But I must also mention, it's not that all Taliban, uh, these different groups that I mentioned earlier, that they're all under the influence of the Pakistani military. Pakistani military has more control over the old guard Uh, among those Pakistani intelligence has support base. That's why the Pakistani former intelligence chief, General Faiz Hamid, had landed in Afghanistan and was trying to show around that, okay, he's the man in power. He was questioned about it in Pakistani parliament later on in a secret closed-door event. And he was told, why were you photographed? Because that exposed or that uh, kind of showed to everyone that Pakistan is actually controlling Taliban. And his response was, well, the... American intelligence chief and the Chinese intelligence chief was also there. Mm-hmm. And he was told, but they were never pictured or photographed. You are the one and you, you expose the links. So I doubt that out of the 33 members of the cabinet, he was able to get more than 10 of his nominees. But that's still a big number. That actually reflects the kind of influence Pakistan has. Maybe one third of Taliban leadership um, have very good relations with Pakistan. That That's my kind of Assessment and calculated guess.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and as you say, that's a that's an impressive uh, proportion. Uh, we should talk. We we talk about Pakistan, but we should talk about some of the other regional uh, powers that, particularly since the Taliban's re-establishment of control, have themselves become major players. I'm thinking particularly of China, Iran. And perhaps also Russia. So would it be worth saying a little bit about uh, the, the the different roles that these countries play? And I, I'd like to start, if I may, with Iran, because, of course, uh, a long time ago, but, but back in the sort of distant memory of the 1990s, Iran nearly went into a full scale war against Taliban Afghanistan. So we've come a long way, haven't we?
1: Oh, absolutely. They were close to coming to a war at that time. There were water distribution issues. Um, Taliban had killed uh, some Iranian diplomats at that time. um, And those were the issues. However, we have seen Iranian strategy kind of uh, becoming more sophisticated over the last 20 years. And we had seen um, uh, that how they had um, expanded their role, whether in Lebanon or in Iraq. Uh, In fact, I'm a very frequent visitor to Iraq, and I do a lot of research work on Iraq. So I have seen everyone I have interviewed in Iraq. Um, they would always mention about Iranian influence in hushed tones. So Iran, ha- Iran's strategy and policy in the region has been quite effective in many ways. Yeah. Um, and one can argue what what drives that because of Iran feeling itself cornered and that that's there. Every country has a right, and others are doing it as well. But Iran has been quite successful actually, and uh, in kind of um, re-engaging with Taliban after that initial. Um, cr- chaos and crisis situation in 1990s. Um, we know also, I remember reading that headline, I think 10 or 15 years ago, that President Karzai was receiving bags full of dollars from the Iranian intelligence. And that was a leading story at that time. Yeah. Um, so they they had developed a very good relationship with um, Ashraf Ghani and Karzai and the government. At one time, I remember one of my PhD students at Columbia University in New York, uh, she did her um, amazing work. uh, uh, It was on uh, Afghan media. And she was convinced, and I I trusted her uh, assessment and research. If I remember correctly, 60 to 70% of the Afghan media was receiving some kind of fee or honorarium or gifts from from Iran. And wow. this time, we are talking about 10 years ago. And this was at a time when the Afghan media was um, getting all the support from the Western Alliance as well. Iran was able to kind of penetrate into the Afghan media. And that of course, led to a certain image building of Iran in Afghanistan. The most remarkable thing in a sense is that they also were talking to and working with Taliban, maybe not very actively before 2021. Uh, but they have developed good enough relations that now not only that Iranian dignitaries are regularly visiting uh, Afghanistan, also um, I and I have mentioned this in the book that Mullah Hebatullah, uh, the supreme commander, is now building his own independent uh, sort of a security force, and he's building it on the pattern of IRCG and. He had received this idea from an Iranian delegation which had mentioned to him that you are not the supreme commander. All the forces of Haqqani's, Haqqani controls the interior ministry, Mullah Yaqub, the armed forces. Um, so, although they all, I think, at this time are still loyal to Hibbatullah, they are not their, their own forces. They, 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 there is a certain cohesion within Af- Afghan Taliban also when it comes to their main uh, interests. But... Hibatullah also is building his separate security force because Iranians gave him that idea. So Iranian influence is there. But if I may add, if I have to kind of categorize and say who are the, those regional countries which have most influence, I would put Qatar and UAE, and Turkey also in the same group. Yeah. Uh, Qatar perhaps has more influence uh, in Afghanistan today than Iran, and Pakistanis are quite uncomfortable with the Qatari influence because that competes with their interest.
0: Yes, fascinating. Of course, wh- when we talk about a country such as China, that is very much more, I think, an economic a relationship for both sides. And that leads us on to the, the state of Afghanistan itself, under the Taliban. Of course, famously, uh, the the flows of international aid, they, they've not completely dried up, but they've definitely become perhaps a trickle. Uh, and the the crisis of governance in Afghanistan is notable. And, and it's also notable the way in which the Taliban has backslid on, you know, commitments it made, for example, on women's education. So what what's your sort of uh, I, I suppose, in, in the final few minutes, really, what's your perspective on, on how the Taliban will be able to govern in this environment where it lacks resources, it seems unable to move on from some of its very hidebound traditional approaches that, that it held in previous years? Uh, h- how will it be able to, to run a country on that basis? Indeed,
1: it is a huge challenge and the biggest challenge is in terms of the transition of the whole of Taliban movement. They in the last 20 years, they had uh, operated as an insurgent, movement, in some ways, uh, as a terrorist organization as well. And to convert from those two um, kind of um, strategies or operational mode into a mode of governance is very difficult. But to give credit where due, uh, Taliban have not burned down Kabul. They have tried to be the successor to the previous Afghan government. They have moved into the ministries. They have made appointments um, in those ministries. They are running these military academy, the police academy. They are all uh, all those um, march pasts and all those uniforms tell me this is different Taliban because they were never into these uh, modern uh, uh Western style uniforms mm-hmm. that they would wear. Um, and they, they have accepted that. So yeah. Taliban are trying to modernize. And my argument is by virtue of this governance experience, it is a forcing mechanism of moderation uh, in a yeah. sense. Uh, I'm not saying they are uh, modernizing, but those modernizing facts are a huge. Vectors are playing a huge role yeah. and just one thing on china china i think is is related to this china was waiting in the wings um china could have cut a big check for afghanistan right from from the word go i think they wanted uh, taliban to see that no one from the west is perhaps making any big checks for the uh, government of afghanistan and that china that ultimately will be the uh, will be the savior of of taliban and that's what we heard and we saw in a about uh, few weeks ago, when in Pakistan, the Chinese foreign minister was there, the Taliban foreign minister was there, and the Pakistani foreign minister was there. There was a big delegation of Taliban, and they came up with um, final statements. And China, for the first time, has come up with a proper policy document, which was mentioned uh, and quoted in newspapers, saying, we accept uh, Afghanistan as a sovereign, independent state, and then saying, we want Uh, Afghanistan to build a strong counter-terrorism strategy. So China is increasing its role. It wanted Taliban to see uh, for some reason that, okay, no one is helping from outside and and that is having an impact. I think um, uh, that's why I argue that the West will have to engage with Taliban. And the reason being that we fought them for 20 years. We tried everything we could um, and there were some various new institutions that were built. So all that West did has not gone down the drain which is there engagement will in my view will empower some of the or relatively moderate forces in Kabul and if not now, it is a different situation if Taliban are not going to help with counterterrorism, if they will fail to curb the activities of Daesh and ISK, uh, and if they will themselves start transnational um, uh, militant activity. Um, now, we are in a bet- much better position to know where is Ministry of Interior, where is Ministry of Defense, where is Hibatullah. Previously, they were in the mountains. Now everyone is a marked man. Um, so not to convey a threat in, in, in any sense of the word, what I'm saying is Taliban are also much more vulnerable today. They would also like to succeed. The challenge is the hardliners in Kandahar who are living in some other age, very dogmatic. It The moderate, relatively poor Progressive, again, I I know the word progressive, liberal and moderate and modernizing are something not that will go with Taliban, but there I'm arguing there are some people who believe or who are inclined towards these ideas by engaging and by hoping that they are the ones who become more influential, they might be able to turn Afghanistan around. Otherwise, um, I think the likelihood is that it it can get back into a chaotic world very soon, which will not be good for us, um, which will not be good for the region, which will not be good for the ordinary Afghans who have paid a very, very heavy price because of all this war and conflict.
0: Well, Hassan Abbas, that's such a perfect place to uh, finish this interview. Um, I recommend your book, The Return of the Taliban, Afghanistan After the Americans Left, published by Yale University Press. I recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to be talking to you. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And remember, you can support our work through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast for more information. bunker was written and presented by arthur snell the producer was kasha tomashevich with audio production by me simon williams managing editor is jacob jarvis the group editor is andrew harrison with music by kenny dickinson and artwork by james Parrott. the bunker is a podmasters production